this is B-Side. I'm Tamara Keith, and uh, right now I am behind the wheel of a car, so uh, I'm going to hand the mic over to Rob Sachs, who's going to tell you what we're up to. Hey there, this is uh, Rob, and uh, it is a rainy Saturday afternoon, and I'm in the car with Tamara, and she decided that she wanted to go on a quest to find the Mason-Dixon line, and I said, okay, let's go for it. But then I asked, why do you want to do this, Tamara? And she said, well, I'm doing a show about borders and boundaries, and I figured this would be the coolest border or boundary near us. So we have some maps here, we have a GPS unit, and we have a guidebook, and uh, I'm hoping that it just jumps out at us and says, here I am, but we'll see, I don't know. As we're searching, we'll talk about some other boundaries and borders that uh, Tamara has come across. We're going to start out with a story from Sarus Faravar. Now, borders, normally international borders, are secure places. You don't just like, oh, I'm just going to walk across the border right now. You usually need a passport and other things like that. But Sarus found a town where the border is a very complicated thing that... If you had to have a passport every time you crossed this border, you would have a problem. Here's how he describes it. So it's actually two villages. It's Barley Hertog in Belgium and Barley Nassau in the Netherlands. And when I went there, I met this really friendly guy, Willem van Gogh. And he's with the local tourist office. And he took me on a little walking tour. Okay. All right. So which which side are we on right now? Uh, Holland. The Netherlands. How, how, do you, I mean, is there a way to know that just by looking? Yeah, you see there the uh, house numbers. On the, onto the houses you see, uh, and also on this side, it's gone, uh, that we are in, uh, in the Because there's the flag. Yes, the flag. But if we go a little bit to that side, then we see on the street this nail pins, you see. And that tells us that... That side behind this nail paints, uh, we are in another country, namely Belgium. Wait, wait, I don't get this. Nails on the street? Right. So what he calls nails, I would call little crosses, X's, or, you know, painted hashes that mark the border. So imagine a map where instead of a straight border or a border with a few curves here and there, there's a Belgian island in the Netherlands that has all kinds of sharp turns and jagged edges. Then within that zigzag island, there are these Dutch places. We have 22 Belgium pieces in, uh, in Holland. Into those 22 pieces, there are also six pieces um, of Dutch ground. Now, this is very compli- complicated, of course, but when you see the map, uh, it becomes more clear, I think. So the border is pretty much everywhere. How did this happen? Basically, this is an accident of history that dates back to the Middle Ages, when various dukes swapped land with each other and, you know, fought each other and all this kind of stuff. Today, this makes for very weird situations, like an apartment building that has two front doors. Why would you need two front doors? Well, because wherever your front door is, that's officially the country that you live in. So there's this one apartment owner that took a rather slick approach. He decided to put one door on each side of the border. And two doors... For the same building? For the same building. That are less than a meter apart? Yes, uh, 50 centimeters out of each other. It has a meaning, of course. Normally, you use one door because you have to go in and out, and it's not that busy here, so 
the meaning, the idea behind it is we are now on Belgium side and there are apartments and the guy who would have uh, Belgium and Dutch apartments. That only was possible to put a door, one door on the Belgium side, but then all of the apartments are Belgium. So he said, no, I have also to have a Dutch door. That makes it possible to have also a Dutch apartments. <laughs> that just seems ridiculously complicated. Why don't they just fix this border situation? It's not like these countries are at war with each other. Yeah, but see, they don't need to. Today, with the European Union, the border really doesn't exist anyway. Dutch and Belgians, they can easily cross the border and they can live and work on the other side with no problem at all. Willem's colleague at the tourist office, a guy by the name of Vons van Tilburg, told me that living in a place like Barla Hertog and Barla Nassau means that local residents aren't quite like their respective countrymen either. Eh bien sûr, les Hollandais à Barla Hertog. Of course, the Dutch people of Barla Nassau are real Dutch people. But if they go a bit more into the interior of the Netherlands, they'll find that there's something missing. In some small way, they are Belgian. And it's the same thing for the Belgians. In some small way, they are Dutch. Well, Sirus, thanks for taking us to this place. My pleasure, Tamara. And maybe, you know, the reason they aren't changing it is because people like you wouldn't visit if it was a normal border. I think that's definitely true. It, it definitely puts them on a map in a really weird way. Sarus Faravar. He's a reporter based in Oakland, California. I will sing. I will be passed on over now. Take the wheel. Take me down. Let me see. I'm Tamara Keith, and I am here in the car, dangerously driving, uh, with Rob Sachs, who's going to tell you a little bit more. Yeah, so the danger element has definitely stepped it up a notch, I'd say. Uh, it's raining a little bit heavier as we continue our quest to find the famed Mason-Dixon line. Uh, and I think we're getting close. We're heading near that Pennsylvania border. But uh, as we as we drive along through... And, and get close to the state border. I want to tell you a little bit more about another border, the Greek border, on one of the small islands there, where each day the Coast Guard and police pick up 80-plus people arriving illegally, trying to sneak their way into the European Union. Now, Sarah Elzas takes us to this border, where the stakes are incredibly high. It's the middle of the night. I'm in a boat with the Greek Coast Guard in the water between Greece and Turkey. It's raining hard outside, but you can't hear it because the windows of the boat are so thick. I've been here since 10 p.m. The four guys on board haven't said much to me since I got on. No one speaks much English, and I don't think they really understand what I'm doing here. The captain's turned off the engine. 
All the lights are off, though everything's lit orange with the glow of a radar screen. So it's 3 o'clock and we haven't seen anything. What, what do you think is going on? Bad weather. So nobody's coming? Nobody's coming because afraid for the sunk of the boat. And Maybe they will try later or tomorrow. And you, this is, um, for you, this is a good thing? Of course. No illegal immigrants, better for us. That's Vargelis, one of the officers. He's operating a thermal camera with a little joystick. The screen in front of him shows a grainy black and white image of waves outside. We're on a nightly patrol off the coast of Samos, which is one of the hundreds of little Greek islands in the eastern Aegean. All this light is Turkey. Vargelis points to lights across the water. It's Turkey, which is just a few kilometers away. Somewhere in the water in front of us is the eastern border of the European Union. Vargelis takes out a map. This is Samos. Over there is Kusadasi. Kusadasi. It's a resort town on the Turkish coast. It's from there that dozens of people set off each night trying to reach Europe. They make the trip in motorized rubber rafts. Very dangerous to try only with swimming. But with uh, small boats, it's very easy to come in Samos. We try to cover all this area. It's very difficult. Captain Nectarios Kitso says the Coast Guard's mission is broad. We are watching the border for smugglers, for uh, drugs, for everything. But immigration is what takes up most of their time and effort. Smugglers have told immigrants to slash their rafts to force the Coast Guard to take them in, which then changes the mission from border patrol to search and rescue. Sometimes people don't make it, though, and the Coast Guard has to fish out their bodies. They tell me this is one of the worst parts of the job. But normally, they tow the rafts back to Samos, where the people in them are arrested and detained. Most are boys, teenage boys, from Afghanistan, Iraq, Somalia, and other conflict-torn countries. Most aren't aiming for Greece. They're actually headed for Sweden, Denmark, even the U.K. But that's a long ways from here. Samos is just another stop on the way. The immigrant detention center is at the end of a winding road in the hills overlooking Samos town. It's a dozen boxy buildings surrounded by chain-linked fences topped with razor wire. An announcement in Arabic calls people to the dining area for a Greek lesson taught by volunteers from town. A few boys come up to me. They're pushy, eager to talk, especially to my microphone. We said too many times to them, leave us from here, we will leave this country, we will go any other country. This boy's from Afghanistan. He says he's 15. He looks older. He says he's been in detention for 18 days. We are eating and going sleeping. Eat and sleep, eat and sleep. As I think it's not a life. It's not a life, he says. He and the two boys with him asked me to get them out. Uh, if we tell them uh, uh, I want to make him uh, my son. They want me to adopt them. I say it's not possible. They're desperate. Greece has an abysmally low asylum acceptance rate. It's much lower than the rest of Europe. As a result, detention centers like this one are filled to bursting. The day I visited, there were over 600 people, twice as many as it was built for. But that hasn't discouraged anyone. Back on the Coast Guard boat, we see something on the radar. 99% is the Italian ship. The Italian ship is part of a joint European Union patrol program. Yeah, the boats with immigrants is a very small target. Uh, very, very small target. That one's too big to be one. Yes. As it turns out, my night ended without incident, which is unusual, according to the crew. As we headed back to the port, the captain told me I'd brought good luck. Now, I had mixed feelings about this. On the one hand, I was relieved that we hadn't found anyone floating in the dark on a sinking raft. 
On the other hand, I'd done all this work to get on the boat, and I had nothing to show for it. And then I got angry with myself for even thinking about that over the suffering of others. Good luck or bad luck, whatever you want to call it, the quiet night was definitely an anomaly. Just the night before, I saw about 40 people lined up on the port who'd been towed in. Their raft then sat on the dock all day, half deflated, a big slash in its left side, a couple of life jackets, an oar, and some soggy bread floating in the bottom. And the next night, back on the water for the Coast Guard. As one person in Samos told me, how can you keep people out? You can't build walls in the water. Moving down the streams of my lifetime Pools of fascination in my sleep Cooling off the fire of my longing Warming up my cold within his heat Bouncing down the walls of inhibition Evaporating all of my fears Baptizing me to complete submission Dissolving my condition with his tears It's just like the water came to us from Sarah Elzis, who works for Radio France International in Paris. And I'm Tamara Keith. This is B-Side. I'm here with Rob Sachs. And um, I just saw a sign that said, Approaching Mason-Dixon Road, which seems like it might be a good sign. Yeah, I would have to think that on your quest for the Mason-Dixon line, when you see something that says Mason-Dixon Road, you think, I'm getting close. Oh, here we go. Pennsylvania welcomes you. Feeling feeling good. And I have to imagine we're right here. We're right at the Mason-Dixon line. So here we go. We're exiting. We'll let you know what we find. We're now in the village of State Line on Mason-Dixon Road. If this cannot be any more Mason-Dixon-centric, I don't know what is. All right. So we're here outside of a place called Rocky Ridge Collectibles. And we're going to see if the folks at Rocky Ridge Collectibles can direct us to the precise Mason-Dixon line. I've heard, Rob, that there are, like, stones that they set out that mark the line. And I'd love to find one of those stones. That would be very cool. We're now in the gift shop, and we're here with Donna, who's the manager. And Donna... We want to know how to find the Mason-Dixon line. Okay. You just leave our parking lot, make a left, go to the next intersection, make another left, and the marker is going to be on your left. You'll see the red light. There's a, a red light there at the entrances to 81, at the ramps to 81. It's going to be on your left right before that. Is this still a big deal here, the Mason-Dixon line? Do people talk about it? Do people? Yes. A lot of people come to look at those markers. Yes. There's another one farther down that same road, and it's going to be on your left in a field, and it almost looks like a missile. Okay? And you can't miss that either. Mm. But do people, I mean, because we're saying this side of the street, we're, on, we're in Maryland now, and then you go up 
And you're in Pennsylvania. And, and do people here feel like they're Southerners, where you go up the block and they're like, no, we're Northerners? No. No, I don't think that happens here too much. Uh, okay. <laughs> we're all one now. We're all one. Okay. Yes. I like that. Yes. That's good. Okay. Our next story is about someone who doesn't feel one with this country at all, North or South. He's chosen to live in a world without borders, and he says it's a choice any of us can make. Scott Gurian introduces us to him. According to my directions from MapQuest, Gary Davis's house is in South Burlington, Vermont, in the United States of America. But as soon as I pulled into his driveway, I noticed a sign next to his front door proclaiming it Sovereign World Territory. He came up to me, pointed out that I was standing on planet Earth, and asked me to present my world citizen card. Since I didn't have one, he decided to waive the requirement. Then he led me into his living room, where we'd sit for the next five hours, talking about a choice he made way back in 1948 when he was 26 years old. It was a simple act that took just a minute to perform, but would make the rest of his life really complicated. He went to the U.S. Embassy in Paris, stood in front of a guy in a gray suit, and read a couple lines off a sheet of paper. I hereby swear that I desire to make a formal renunciation of my American nationality, and pursuant thereto, hereby absolutely and entirely renounce my nationality in the United States and all rights and privileges thereunto, and abjure all allegiance and fidelity to the United States of America. Gary Davis is 88 now. He's committed most of his life to the idea of a world where there are no nations, no borders or boundaries. Gary said he started down this road when he was drafted into World War II and was forced to give up a successful Broadway career. He flew bombing raids over Brandenburg and lost his older brother Bud to a German torpedo. The whole experience led him to reassess his role in life and in the world. And that's why I said there is something intrinsically wrong with society, and I'm not going to play this game anymore. So that started me on a whole wave of thinking about how not to play the game without going to a desert island, you know, and and canceling out. He concluded that the only way to prevent future wars was for people to totally remove themselves from the system that creates the us-versus-them mentality. So he not only gave up his American citizenship, but decided not to become a citizen of any other country. For the rest of his life, he'd be a citizen of the world, a free agent operating by his own set of rules and without any sort of roadmap or instructions. My position was outside the framework of the laws of the nations, so the First Nation, the France, said, get out. And that began the first problem. Where do you go? Though Gary was now officially a man without a country, his home was still the U.S. After haggling with immigration officials, he eventually managed to make his way back. A civil rights lawyer advised him that if he was going to call himself a citizen of the world, he needed a government. So in September of 1953, Gary created the World Government of World Citizens. Today, the world government has a staff of 15. It's headquartered in Washington, D.C., and has an office in Shanghai. It issues its own world citizen passports, and more than 150 countries have actually accepted them on a case-by-case basis. When I first read about Gary Davis several years ago, I was intrigued. I sent away for one of his passports, but I've never tried using it myself. I told that to Gary, and he called me a wimp. But for some people, the stakes are higher. Many of the hundreds of thousands who've applied for world passports are political refugees. Unlike Gary, they didn't choose to become stateless. 
These days, Gary continues to live within the confines of the U.S. in a sort of legal limbo. The United States government can't deal with me. You know, they say, you're not here, you're an excludable alien. But they couldn't exclude me. They can't send me back to my home, which is Bar Harbor, Maine, if you want. See, this is the power of the individual who claims world citizenship. Gary's view of political boundaries is not that they shouldn't exist, but that they don't exist. He says they're a fiction we've all come to believe in. I gave up my cultural boundaries. I gave up my professional boundaries. I gave up my citizenship boundary. And I entered a whole new world where there was no boundary. It was very frightening and yet very exciting because you're kind of alone here. And it's an adventure to find where your boundaries are and you're creating them. Gary told me about a recent trip he took to visit his kids who live in Montreal. Coming back, he arrived at the border as usual with only his world government passport. At first, immigration refused to let him pass. It was the same bureaucratic showdown he's faced many times over the years. Gary told them that their borders were ridiculous. He said that the sun shined the same on both sides of their imaginary line, and that he was just going from one part of the world to another. Eventually, they relented. Get out of here, they said. Go home. This land is your land. of the United States. He lives in the territory of New Jersey. And this is B-Side. I'm Tamara Keith, and I'm here with Rob Sachs. We are sitting in the car. We are about to drive off to try and find these Mason-Dixon line marker stones. Yes, we're going to go into the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania and uh, try to find it. I think Donna gave us some pretty thorough directions there. I mean, she really, if we can't find it from Donna's directions, we, we have serious issues. But you're not going to find out if we find these stones until the next episode of B-Side. And that's all for this edition. Our show was produced by Renee Gattel, Mia Lobel, and Charla Bear. We had stories from Sarus Faravar, Sarah Elzis, and Scott Gurian. And Rob Sachs is the man behind What Would Rob Do? The NPR podcast, blog, and book. To see photos from this adventure and to learn about B-Side and how to make great radio on your own, please visit our website. It's bsideradio.org. That's the letter B-S-I-D-E radio.org. I'm Tamara Keith. Thanks for listening.